Well, good morning again. Uh, As always, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be able to proclaim God's Word to you. This morning, we're going to hear again God's Word from Hebrews chapter 11. Remember, the whole of Hebrews chapter 11 is an illustration of what it means to live by faith. Uh, We've been given examples of what it means to trust in the Word of God instead of the immediate circumstances around us. We've looked at examples from creation until the time of the flood in verses 1 through 7. Then last week, we looked at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah uh, in verses 8 through 22. And now this week, we're going to be looking at the period of the Exodus, which, which focuses on the faith of Moses and of the Israelites. So we're going to be in verses 23 through 31. And as we look at this section, we're going to continue to see different aspects, different angles of faith and what it means to live by faith. Last week, we talked quite a bit about how putting our trust in Christ is different than putting our trust in our external circumstances, but it's putting our trust in the unseen promises of God. We saw that primarily in the lives of Abraham and Sarah, that faith always chooses the better evidence. Instead of focusing on the evidence of the circumstances of our lives, it puts its trust, we put our trust in the unseen promises of God, which are always faithful and trustworthy. This week, we're going to see that faith makes another choice. Faith always chooses the greater wealth. Faith always chooses the greater wealth. When you live by faith, you will always pull out a ledger and consider which option before you offers the greater wealth. And if you have faith, you will choose the greater treasure, the greater reward. But in order to see which is the greater reward, which is the greater wealth, we always need to be able to see clearly in order to make that choice correctly. So if you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, would you open it up to Hebrews chapter 11? We're going to begin in verse 23. But before we read this passage, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, as we read your Holy Word, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might see your son, Jesus Christ, and choose him over all the things of the world that call to us. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to, jo- than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of the Lord. So as our author looks at especially the life of Moses, we're going to focus this morning on the meat of this passage, which is verses 24 through 26. That's where the author of Hebrews peers into the mind and the motives of Moses and shows us why he made the decisions that he made. And then we're going to see how the other stories in this passage fill out our definition of faith. So if you look in your outline, you'll see first that Moses chose the greater wealth. He chose identifying with God's people over the world. Second, we're going to see how fear plays into faith. And then third, we're going to ask the hard question about those who don't have faith. Before we focus on verses 24 and 26, I want to give a quick reminder of the story of Moses to those who don't know it or maybe to those who have forgotten some of it. Joseph was the last person mentioned in Hebrews 11, back in verse 22, and Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham. Joseph, at the end of his life, saved all of Abraham's children, all of his family, by bringing them to Egypt in the midst of a famine. He'd risen to power in the court of the king of Egypt, who's called the Pharaoh. So his family, Abraham's family, who are now called the Israelites, moved to the outskirts of Egypt. And by the beginning of the book of Exodus, we're told that they had been there for 430 years. And over all of those generations, they have kept growing quite a lot, in fact, so much that the new Pharaoh is scared of them. He's scared that these Israelites might overpower the Egyptians. And so by the the time Moses arrives, rather than having the favor of Pharaoh, like Joseph did, the Israelites have been forced to become his slave labor. And as a way to combat their rapid growth, Pharaoh has decreed that the Hebrew midwives kill all the baby boys who are born to the Israelites. That's the background of the birth of Moses that we see in Exodus chapter 2. So when Moses is born, because he is an Israelite boy, he should have been killed. But his parents hide him to protect him, as Hebrews 11.23 tells us. When they determine they can't hide him any longer, Moses' mother makes a basket of reeds and takes him to the river and puts him among the reeds at the river's edge. And as it turns out, one of the daughters of Pharaoh, the king, comes down to the river, sees the basket, and takes Moses as her son. He goes to live with his birth mother for a little while, but after he is weaned, he goes and he lives in the house of Pharaoh, growing up as a son of the daughter of Pharaoh. He grew up in the royal house of Egypt. 
That's the background that we need to understand what the author is telling us in chapter 11. So read again with me verses 24 through 26. He says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Our author is pointing to something that isn't made explicit in the book of Exodus. He points out the benefits that Moses would have had access to living and growing up in the household of Pharaoh. He mentions three benefits here. Status, pleasures, and wealth. Implicitly, he mentions Moses' status, that he's being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Remember, ancient Egypt is not modern America. People are not getting elected to positions of power. If you are a family member of the Pharaoh, you are in a position of power. Moses had status just because he was a part of the family of Pharaoh. Secondly, our author tells us that Moses would have had access to the pleasures of sin. We're not told what these are, but sin is not so different now than it was that long ago that we can imagine what he's talking about. If you are rich and powerful, you indulge in whatever desires you want to indulge in. So Moses had access to the pleasures of sin. And the third benefit mentioned is wealth. Verse 26 talks about the treasures of Egypt. Now, those were the things that Moses possessed as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Status, pleasures, and wealth. But there's a key word in verse 26 that we saw show up with Abraham and with Sarah last week. Moses considered He considered, he contemplated what was in front of him. He deliberated his decisions. He weighed the options and he made a decision. He looked at the status, pleasures, and wealth he had as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And what's amazing is that the text does not tell us that he decided he didn't care about status, pleasures, and wealth because, you know, Christians don't care about those things. No, instead, it tells us he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. We're going to talk more about the reproach of Christ in a second, but just as we saw last week that faith is not an abandonment of reason and of evidence, it's important for us to see this week that faith is not an abandonment of pleasure and joy. Moses chose the greater wealth. He chose the greater pleasure. He didn't turn off his desire for pleasure and for joy. Instead, he chose the right option before him. This idea that we are actually to pursue our pleasure and pursue our joy is all over the scriptures. And I don't mean all over like we're going to cite three proof texts. I mean every page of the scriptures, you are getting pictures of pursuing your greatest pleasure and your greatest joy. We're just going to mention a few right now. Two of them I mentioned last week. 
Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, as he is saying hard things to them, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus isn't trying to convince us that we should accept a lesser joy or that joy isn't important. He's trying to convince us that he is the one that is offering true joy and full joy as opposed to the fake joy that is offered around us. He says in John 10 verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Satan, Jesus tells us, is actually the one who is out to steal your joy and your pleasure. Jesus came so that you might have it in abundance. Psalm 16 is a psalm of David, and verses 4 through 6 say, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. But, David says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Inheritance is about wealth. David is saying that the Lord is his wealth. It's his inheritance. He is his chosen portion. And so those who choose something other than the Lord will have their sorrow multiplied. But David doesn't. Look what he says in verse 11 of Psalm 16. He says to God, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Joy, pleasure, wealth is a Christian desire. The problem is not that we desire those things. God has given us those desires. The problem is that we choose poorly. Too often, we are nearsighted. Look with me in Matthew 13. Jesus tells a short parable about a treasure. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The man clearly has chosen one thing over another. He sells everything that he possesses and he buys the field with the treasure in it. The text says that he doesn't do this begrudgingly, like he's unsure of his decision. He does it joyfully. He happily gives up all that he has. Jesus says this is a picture of, of the Christian life. The Christian life, living by faith, is not about giving up your desires for pleasure and joy. It's about making the decisions that will truly fulfill and satisfy those desires. C.S. Lewis, as he often does, makes this point wonderfully and memorably. It's a rather long quote from his book, The Weight of Glory, but I think that it's easy to follow. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good 
and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's a long way of saying that listening to Jesus should cause us to be more like Moses. Moses saw that the pleasures of sin are fleeting. They are temporary. They're short-lived. They're unfulfilling and unsatisfying ultimately. And so he chose instead the pleasures that will last forevermore. He chose the fullness of joy that is only found at God's right hand where Christ is seated. Do you think this way? Do you think of obedience as choosing the better joy? Or do you think of it as the hard road that we must endure? It is choosing pleasure, true pleasure over fleeting pleasure. Do you think about communion with Jesus in worship and in prayer, in reading and meditating upon the scriptures as the way to access the pleasures that are better than the fleeting pleasures of sin? Do we seek our joy in Christ? That's the decision that Moses made. He considered and chose the greater wealth, the better pleasure. But we can't skip past the decision that he actually made in his life. The author is clear that his motive was choosing Christ, was choosing the better wealth. But what did that look like tangibly for Moses? The author tells us that that looked like identifying with God's people. Verse 24 says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The way that Moses' choice played out was actually in terms of group identity. He was living as someone who was identified with Pharaoh's household. And what he chose instead was to be identified with the people of God. We see this happen in Exodus 2, 11 to 12, when Moses goes out to the people of Israel and he kills an Egyptian who is beating an Israelite. Importantly, in that text, in Exodus 2, Moses writes twice that he was going out to his brothers, his family. Moses chooses God's people as his family. He chose to identify himself with them instead of with the Egyptians. And Hebrews tells us that identifying with God's people, this is what it meant for Moses, and this is what it means for us, necessarily means choosing the mistreatment of God's people as well. Do you see that in verse 24? He doesn't just choose God's people, he chooses to be mistreated with 
God's people. This is the idea of group solidarity, choosing to be identified with a group no matter what comes. He's choosing to be identified with God's people. This is a theme throughout the book of Hebrews. Hebrews doesn't argue, remember, that Jesus is better. It's arguing that Jesus is better than the old covenant in the old way, these Jewish people who are tempted to return to the old covenant. The author does not argue that Jesus is better, so feel free to go back to synagogue worship. Just make sure that while you're there, you're thinking about Jesus and worshiping him in your heart. No, that's not what he says. Choosing Jesus necessarily means choosing Jesus' people. It means throwing your lot in with them. The famous go-to-church passage in Hebrews chapter 10 has a lot more meaning when you read it in context. We usually remember, don't neglect gathering together, as is the habit of some. But the whole command is much fuller than that. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you belong to Jesus, you are commanded to be with the people of God. Living by faith is not a solo call. It's a group call. We saw this idea of group identity show up in the first passage that we looked at at the very end of Hebrews 10. You remember that the author is reminding those people of what it was like when they first came to Christ. This is what he says to them. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They became partners with other Christians who were suffering, and in turn, it caused them to be mistreated. Verse 34 says that they had compassion on those in prison. That term that's translated compassion can also be translated suffer with. They became partners and chose to suffer with other Christians who were in prison. This is identifying with God's people even when it costs you something. This is solidarity. Last week, we talked about how the patriarchs acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And we talked about how that wording gives us the impression that they are verbally confessing this to one another in an ongoing way. They are reminding one another that they don't belong here, that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. They are constantly reminding each other of their shared identity that does not belong here, but belongs in heaven. So this is the idea of identifying with God's people, even when it means mistreatment. I think one reason why this is very important for us to think on and meditate on right now is that it's really hard to do right now. There was a time in this part of the world where identifying with the people of God may have actually helped you gain or maintain some sort of status. 
Mentioning in a job interview or at a party that you are a faithful member of a church might have given you some respect. But we're getting to a point where the opposite is actually starting to happen. In some settings, it's actually a danger to your reputation, maybe even your job for some of you, if people know that you are a faithful member of an Orthodox Christian church. And if you notice, there are a lot of people a lot of Christians that are publicly distancing themselves from the church, from God's people. And we all might think, good thing I'm not doing that. I'm not ashamed of being a Christian. But remember, the command is to identify with God's people. How often do we see some Christian make a public statement and work really hard to make sure the people around us, even if it's the people who follow us on Facebook, and Twitter know that we're not like them. We publicly distance ourselves from other Christians rather than identifying ourselves with them. That's not solidarity. And I'm not saying there's an easy fix. I'm not saying there's never a time to critique the public witness of the church or to say, you know, not all Christians believe the exact same thing. But I do think we need to wrestle with this in light of what Scripture is telling us here, do we identify with God's people, even when it might cost us some part of our status or reputation? Do we identify with God's people even when it might be embarrassing, or even, God forbid, when it might cause us to be mistreated with them? This isn't an easy question, but I do think it's one that we need to wrestle with. This morning, we prayed for and thought on the persecuted church across the world. Praying for them is a way to seek God's favor on their behalf. We do actually believe that God listens to our prayers and that he affects things because of that. But it's also a way to shape us. As we are praying for those across the world who are are mistreated, we ought to remember that that is the lot of Christians in this life mistreatment, and persecution. We were not made to live cushy as Christians in this world. There are two more brief questions that I think this text addresses that I want to look at together. The first is one that you might be thinking right now as you think about suffering with Christ and with his people. What about fear? Do I lack the faith that is required of me if I'm afraid to suffer and afraid of what obedience might cost me. Verses 23 and 27 address fear as a motive. Verse 23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. We don't have enough time to do complete justice to this question this morning, but I do want you to see that the story Hebrews is referencing in Exodus 2, where Moses leaves Egypt and goes into the wilderness, Specifically, chapter 2, verse 14, explicitly says that Moses was afraid when he realized that people knew that he had killed the Egyptian. 
So either Hebrews is lying to us about Moses being afraid, or there's something else that the author is trying to tell us. And in short, the author of Hebrews is not lying about Moses having fear. What he is saying instead is that Moses' faith, not his fear, was the dominant motive for him leaving Egypt. Faith does not demand that you pretend you aren't afraid. That's not what faith does. Rather, faith overwhelms your fear with trust in God. You are not sinning if you're afraid of what obedience might cost you. You are not sinning if you're afraid to suffer with Christ. You are sinning if you let fear, fear of suffering, fear of public reproach or mistreatment, cause you to shrink back instead of pressing on in obedience. The second question that I think rounds out what we're talking about here is a question that some of you may have been asking this whole time. What if I don't belong? Everything so far has been assuming that I am one of God's people and that I need to identify with the rest of God's people. But what if I'm not one of God's people? What then? The last three stories in this section address that question. Verse 28 says, By faith, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. All three of those stories acknowledge what happens to those who are not the people of God when God comes in salvation. For God's people, each of those stories is a story of salvation. But for God's enemies, each of those stories is a story of judgment. The Passover is when the final plague came upon Egypt, the death of the firstborn. God told the Israelites how to be saved by killing a lamb and spreading its blood on their doorposts. But the Egyptians in the Passover experienced God's judgment for their sin. They lost their firstborn sons. The Red Sea was the miraculous salvation of God's people when it looked like they were at a dead end. God parted the sea and they walked across to safety and freedom. But when the Egyptians tried to follow to kill them, they didn't have the safe passage of God's people. Instead, the waters of salvation became the waters of judgment for them. The story of Jericho fast-forwards to the time where Joshua is now leading God's people, and he's leading them to conquer the promised land. In their first real battle when they get into Canaan at Jericho, God tells them not to use battering rams to knock down the gates, or to use ladders to scale the walls. Instead, he tells them to walk around the city for seven days and blow their trumpets and shout on the last day. And it works. They obeyed. The walls of Jericho fall down, and it is the victory of the Israelites. But for Jericho, the enemies of God, 
It's their judgment. They're killed in the battle. Salvation for God's people is always bound up in judgment for God's enemies. So you might be asking, what am I supposed to do if I'm not a part of God's people? Am I just going to be judged and killed like all those people you just read about? Can't I do anything? Yes. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust in Him to save you. Rahab is your example in verse 31. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. When she finds out Israel's coming, she makes an amazing declaration about the power of God and her certainty that God's people will win the battle. So she throws in her lot with the Israelites. She switches sides. She swaps out her identity with the people of Jericho and Canaan for identity with God's people. And so she is saved. Rahab is your example. If you've been living a life of sin far from God, if you have been pining after the fleeting pleasures of sin and looking to the wealth and status of this world, you have one thing to do to change all of that. Put your faith in Jesus. That is the prerequisite to joining God's people. There is no command to clean your life up first. There is no command to get things together for a while before you come. Pay attention to what the text says. Rahab was a prostitute. She joins God's people not by her righteous living, but simply by putting her faith in Jesus. God's people have a wide open front door. Anyone can swap out their identity with the world for identity with God's people. The way to identifying with God's people is faith in Jesus. And as we end, I want to go back to that idea of solidarity. If you struggle with this idea of identifying with God's people, about wrapping your reputation up with the reputation of others, you need to hear this. God has also thrown in his lot with his people. He has wrapped up his reputation in us. Hebrews eleven sixteen talked about how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were strangers in the world looking for a heavenly country. And the verse ends with, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Hebrews 2, talking about Jesus, says, For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, And those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. God is not ashamed to identify with us. Though we are foolish, weak, and sinful, and though our status is that of strangers and exiles in this world, we are his family. God calls himself our God. And Jesus, the perfect Son of God, is not ashamed to call himself your brother. He has joined himself to us. So we are called to suffer with God's people. We are called to choose the reproach of Christ as greater wealth. But we are also promised that Jesus is not ashamed of us. 
And because he has joined himself to us, we will be in his presence where there is fullness of joy. And we will be at his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of your faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you and we are astounded that you are not embarrassed, you are not ashamed to be called our God. Jesus, that despite our weakness and our sin, you are not ashamed to be called our brother. Please humble us. Humble us so that we might be more like our brother Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.